it looks like one of you has voted for Yates. All right. And that's 100% of the votes so far. So looks like we're going to be doing Yates. And what I've got for you today is Irish fairy tales um, brought together by W.B. Yates. fan on before I got this started. Okay, so just getting this set up and it is now 810 so we'll be getting started. Alright, I've got my all important beverages, you got your beverages with you. Let's get this show on the road. Okay. All right, an introduction by Yates himself, an Irish storyteller. I often, what a way to get started right mess up on the first word. I am often doubted when I say that the Irish people still believe in fairies. People think I am merely trying to bring back a little of the old, dead, beautiful world of romance into this century of great engines and spinning genies. Old Biddy Hart, at any rate, does not think so. Our brand new opinions have never been heard of under her round thatched roof, tufted with Yellowstone crop. It is not so long since I sat by the turf fire eating her griddle cake in her cottage on the slope of Benbun and asking after friends, the fairies, who inhabit the green thorn-covered hill up there behind her house. How firmly she believed in them how greatly she feared offending them. For a long time, she would give me no answer, but I would always mind my own affairs and they would always mind theirs. A little talk about my great-grandfather who lived all his life in the valley below, and a few words to remind her how I myself was often under her roof when but seven or eight years old, loosed her tongue, however. It would be less dangerous, at any rate, to talk to me of fairies than it would be to tell some tarot of them, as she contemptuously called English tourists. For I had lived under the shadow of their own hillsides, she did not forget, however, to remind me to say after we had finished, God bless them Thursday, that being the day, and so ward off their displeasure in case they were angry at our notice, for they love to live and dance unknown of men. Once started, she talked on freely enough. 
her face glowing in the firelight as she bent over the griddle or stirred the turf, and told how such a one was stolen away from near Colney village and made to live seven years among the gentry, as she calls the fairies for politeness's sake. And how when she came home, she had no toes, for she had danced them off. And how such another was taken from a neighboring village of Grange and compelled to nurse the child of the Queen of Fairies a few months before I came. Her, her news about the creatures is always quite matter-of-fact and detailed just as if she dealt with any common occurrence. The late fair or the dance at Roses last year, when the bottle of whiskey was given to the best man, and a cake tied up with, in ribbons to the best woman dancer. They are to her people not so different from myself, only grander and finer in every way. They have the most beautiful parlors and drawing rooms, she would tell you. As an old man told me once, she has endowed them with all she knows of splendor, although that is not such a great deal, for her imagination is easily pleased. What does not seem to us so very wonderful is wonderful to her there where all is so homely under her wood rafters and her thatched ceiling covered with whitewashed canvas. All right, skip that, let's get that. And that kind of gives you a, a glimpse of the ideas that Yates had about the Irish, and he uses the word peasantry. Um, I use people because that seems a little less offensive, but the majority of the next bit is, um, shall we say, not as um, pleasant when concerning the Irish. Okay, so the first chapter of this particular piece is titled with the story the fairy's dancing place. Lanty McCleskey had married a wife, and of course it was necessary to have a house in which to keep her. Now Lanty had taken a bit of a farm, about six acres, but that as there was no house on it, he resolved to build one. and that it might be as comfortable as possible, he selected for the site of it one of those beautiful green circles that are supposed to be the playground of fairies. Lanty was warned against this, but as he was a headstrong man and not much given to fear, he said he would not change such a pleasant situation for his house to oblige all the fairies in Europe. Famous last words, huh? He accordingly proceeded with the building, which he finished off, off neatly. And as it is usual on those occasions, 
to give one's neighbors and friends housewarming. So, in compliance with this good and pleasant old custom, Lanty, having brought home the wife in the course of the day, got a fiddler and a lot of whiskey, and gave those who had come to see him dance in the evening. This was all very well, and the fun and hilarity were proceeding briskly, when a noise was heard after night had set in. Like a crushing and a straining of ribs and rafters on the top of the house. The folks assembled all listened, and without doubt there was nothing heard but crushing and heaving and pushing and groaning and panting, as if a thousand little men were engaged on pulling down the roof. Come, said a voice, which spoke in tone of command. Work hard. You know we must have Lanty's house down before midnight. This was an unwelcome piece of intelligence to Lanty, who, finding that his enemies were such as he could not cope with, walked out and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, I humbly ask your pardon for building on any place belonging to you. But if you'll have the civilitude to let me alone this night, I'll begin to pull down and remove the house tomorrow morning. This was followed by a noise like a clapping of a thousand tiny hands and a shout of bravo, Lanty, build halfway between the two white thorns above the boreen. And after another hearty little shout of exultation, there was a brisk rushing noise and they were heard no more. The story, however, does not end there. For Lanty, when digging the foundations of his new house, found the bowl of a cam of gold. So that in leaving to the fairies their playground, he became a richer man than ever he otherwise would have been, had he never come in contact with them at all. And by the way, a cam is a metal vessel in which brush lights are um, dipped. And, okay, so that's story one. Story number two is the, the rival Kempers. In the North of Ireland, there are spinning meetings of unmarried females frequently held at the houses of farmers called camps. Every young woman who has got the reputation of being a quick and expert spinner attends where the camp is to be held. At the hour usually before daylight and on these occasions she is accompanied by her sweetheart or some male relative who carries her wheel and conducts her safely across the fields or along the road. As the case may be. A camp is indeed an animated and joyous scene and one besides which is calculated to promote industry and decent pride. 
Scarcely anything can be more cheering and agreeable than to hear at a distance, breaking the silence of morning, the light-hearted voices of many girls, either in mirth or song. The humming sound of the busy wheels jarred upon a little, it is true, by the stridulous noise and the checkings of the reels, and the voices of the reelers as they call along the checks, together with the name of the girl and the quantity she has spun for that period. For the contest is generally commenced two or three hours before daybreak. This mirthful spirit is also sustained by the prospect of a dance, with which, by the way, every camp closes, and when the fair victor is declared, she is to be looked upon as the queen of the meeting and treated with the necessary respect. But for our tale, everyone knew Jean Bouet McGarvin to be the cleanest, best conducted boy, and the most industrious too, in the whole parish of Fa Magbalik. Hard was it to find a young fellow who would handle a flail, spade, or reaping hook in better style, or who could go through his day's work in more credible or workmanlike manner. In addition to this, he was a fine, well-built, well handsome young man, as you could meet in the fair. And so, sign was on it. Maybe the pretty girls weren't likely to pull each other's caps about him. Sean, however, was as prudent as he was good-looking, and though all he but Sean, however, was as prudent as he was good-looking, and although he wanted a wife, yet the sorrow one of him, but preferred taking a well-handed smart girl, who was known to be well-behaved and industrious like himself. Here, however, was where the puzzle lay on him. For instead of one girl of that kind, there were in the neighborhood no less than a dozen of them. All equally fit and willing to become his wife, and all equally good-looking. There were two, however, whom he thought a trifle above the rest. But so nicely ba balanced were Biddy Corrigan and Sally Gorman, that for the life of him, he could not make up his mind to decide between them. <laughs> Each of them had won her camp, and it was currently said by them, who ought to know, that neither of them could overmatch the other. No two girls in the parish were better respected, or deserved to be so, and the consequence was, they had everyone's good word and good wish. Now it so happened that Sean had been pulling a cord with each. As he knew not how to decide between, he thought he would allow them to do that themselves if they could. <laughs> he accordingly gave out to the neighbors that he would hold a camp on each day week. And he told Biddy and Sally especially that he had made up his mind to marry whichever of them won the camp. For he knew right well, as did all the parish, that one of them must. 
The girls agreed to this good-humoredly, Biddy telling Sally that she, Sally, would surely win it, and Sally, not to be outdone in civility, telling the same thing to her. Let's see how this goes. Well, the week was nearly past, there being but two days till that of the camp. When about three o'clock, there walks into the house of old Patty Corrigan, a little woman dressed in high-heeled shoes and a short red cloak. There was no one in the house but Biddy at the time, who rose up and placed a chair near the fire and asked the little red woman to sit down and rest herself. She accordingly did so and rest herself. In a short time, a lively chat commenced between them. So, said the strange woman, there's to be a great camp in Sean Boob McGarvin's. Indeed, there is that, good woman, replied Biddy, smiling and blushing to back of that again because she knew her own fate depended on it and continued the little woman whoever wins the camp wins a husband ah so it seems well whoever gets sean will be a good woman for he's the moral of a good boy that's nothing but the truth anyhow replied biddy sighing for fear you may be sure that she herself might lose him. Indeed, a young woman might sigh for many a worse reason. But, said she, changing the subject, you appear to be tired, honest woman, and I think you had better eat a bit and take a good drink of thick milk to help you on your journey. Thank you kindly, a Colleen. I'll take a bit if you please, hoping at the same time that you won't be the poorer of it this day twelve months. Sure, said the girl, you know that what we give from kindness ever and always leaves a blessing behind it. Yes, assure, when it is given from kindness. She accordingly helped herself to the food that Biddy placed before her and appeared, after eating, to be very much refreshed. Now, said she, you're a very good girl, and if you're able to find out my name before Tuesday morning, the Kemp Day, I tell you that you'll win it and gain a husband. Why, said Biddy, I never saw you before. I don't know who you are, nor where you live. How then can I find out ever your name? You never saw me before, sure enough, said the old woman. And I tell you that you never will see me again but once. Yet if you have not my name for me at the close of the camp, you'll lose all. And that will leave you a sore heart, for well I know you love Sean Boy. So saying, she went away and left poor Biddy quite cast down at what she had what she had said. For to tell the truth, 
She loved Sean very much and had no hopes of being able to find out the name of the little old woman on which it appeared so much depended. It was the same hour, the same day, that Sally Gorman was sitting in her father's house, thinking of the camp, when who should walk in to her but our friend the little red woman. God save you, honest woman, said Sally. This is a fine day that's in it. The Lord be praised. It is, said the woman, as fine a day as one could wish for. Indeed, it is. Have you no news on your on your travels said sally the only news in the neighborhood replied the other is this great camp that's to take place at sean mcgavins they say you're either to win him or lose him then she added looking closely at sally as she spoke i'm not very much afraid of that but even if i do lose him i may get as good it's not easy getting as good rejoined the old woman, and you ought to be very glad to win him if you can. Let me alone for that, said Bip Sally. Biddy's a good girl, I allow, but as for spinning, she never saw the day she could leave me behind her. Won't you sit and rest you? she added. Maybe you're tired. It's time for you to think of it, thought the woman, but she spoke nothing. But she added to herself on reflection, it's better late than never. I'll sit a while till I see a little closer what she's made of. She accordingly sat down and chatted upon several subjects, such as young women like to talk about, for about half an hour. After which she arose, taking her little staff in hand and bade Sally goodbye and went her way. After passing a little from the house, she looked back and could not help speaking to herself as follows. She's smooth and smart, but she wants the heart. She's tight and neat, but she gave no meat. Poor Biddy now made all possible inquiries about the old woman, but to no purpose. Not a soul she spoke to about her had ever seen or heard of such a woman. She felt a very dispirited and began to lose heart, for there is no doubt that if she missed Sean, it would have cost her many a sorrowful day. She knew she would never get his equal, or at least any one that she loved so well. At last, the Kemp day arrived, and with it all the pretty girls of the neighborhood came to Sean's. Among the rest, the two that were decided their right to him were doubtless the handsomest pair by far, and everyone admired them, to be sure. It was blithe and merry place, and many a light laugh and sweet song sang rang out from pretty lips that day. Biddy and Sally, as everyone expected, were far ahead of the rest, but so even in their spinning that the reelers could not for the life of them decide which was the better. It was neck and neck and head and head between the pretty creatures, and all who were at the Kemp kept themselves wound up to the highest pitch of interest and curiosity to know which of them would be successful. The day was now more than half gone, and no difference was between them. 
when, to the surprise and sorrow of everyone present, Biddy Corgan's heck broke in two. And so, to all appearance, ended the contest in favor of her rival. And what added to her mortification, she was as ignorant of the red woman's name as ever. What was to be done? All that could be done was done. Her brother, a boy about 14 years of age, happened to be present when the accident took place. Having been sent by his father and mother to bring them word how the match went on between the rival spinners. Johnny Corrigan was accordingly dispatched with all speed to Donald McCluskers, the wheelwright, in order to get the heck mended, that being Biddy's last but hopeless chance. Johnny's anxiety that his sister should win was, of course, very great, and in order to lose as little time as possible, he struck across the country, passing through, or rather close by, Kilredden Forth, a place celebrated as a resort of the fairies. What was his astonishment? However, as he passed a white thorn tree to hear the f a female voice singing in accompaniment to the sounding of a spinning wheel, the following words. There's a girl in this town doesn't know my name, but my name's even trot, even trot. There's a girl in this town, said the lad, who's in great distress, for she has broken her heck and lost a husband. I'm now going to Dunnell McCusters to get it mended. What's her name? Said, little, said the little red woman. Biddy Corrigan. The little woman immediately whipped out the heck from her own wheel and giving it to the boy desired her to take it to his sister. And never mind Donald McCuster. <laughs> you have little time to lose. So, so go back and give her this. Well, don't tell her how you got it. Nor, above all things, that it was even Trot that gave it to you. The lad returned, and after giving the heck to her sister, as a matter of course, told her that it was a little red woman named Even Trot that sent it to her, a circumstance which made tears of delight start in Biddy's eyes. For she knew now that Even Trot was the name of the old woman, and having known that, she felt that something good was happening to her. She now resumed her spinning, and never did human fingers let down the thread so rapidly. The whole Kemp were amazed at the quantity which from time to time filled her pern. The hearts of her friends began to rise, and those of her heart sink, as hour after hour she was approaching her rise. At length, they were came her friend, the little red woman, and asked, is there anyone in this camp who knows my name? This question she asked three times before Biddy could pluck up courage to answer her. She said at last, there's a girl in this town does know your name. Your name is even Trot, even Trot. I said the old woman, and so it is. And let that name be your guide and your husband's through life. Go steadily along, but let your step be even. Stop little. Keep always advancing. 
and never have cause to rue the day you first saw even Trot. We need scarcely add that Biddy won the camp and the husband, and that she and Sean lived happily and long together. And I have only now to wish, kind reader, that you and I may live longer and more happier still. How am I doing so far? Guys, are you enjoying this or all that good stuff? I mean, shall I continue with, with the next tale? <laughs> Just had a cat come in. It's on my camera. Um, but yeah, he just walked in. That's what, That was what you heard over here with the door opening and me reaching over and giving him a pass. Okay. I'm going to drink here. Mm -hmm. All right. 8.38. So we've got about 20 more minutes. So let's move on to a different section of Irish fairy tales. We've heard a lot about spinning. We've heard a lot about the home. Let's see, and let's move on to, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, all right, glad to, to see that it's um, going fairly well, all right, so, this, this next story, <laughs> comes from the storyteller. Um, the words are Michael Hart, and these are recorded by W.B. Yeats, but they were Michael Hart's story and words. And his story is called A Fairy Enchantment. Okay. In the times when we used to travel by canal, I was coming down from Dublin. When we came to Mullingar, the canal ended and I began to walk. And stiff and fatigued I was after the slowness. I had some friends with me and now and then as we walked, now and then we rode in a cart. So on till we saw some girls milking a cow and stopped to joke with them. After a while, we asked them for a drink of milk. We have nothing to put it in here, they said, but come to the house with us. We, we went home with them and sat around the fire talking. And after a while, the others went and left me, loath to stir from the good fire. I asked the girls for something to eat. There was a pot on the fire and they took the meat out and put it on a plate and told me to eat only the meat that came from the head. When I had eaten, and the girls went out, and I did not see them again. Okay. Formatting. This is interesting. And the girls went out, and I did not see them again. It grew darker and darker, and there I still sat, loath as ever to leave a good fire. 
and after a while, two men came in, carrying between them a corpse. When I saw them, I hid behind the door, says what to the other. Who'll turn the spit, says the other. Michael Hart, come out of that and turn the meat. I came out in a tremble and began turning the spit. Michael Hart, said the one who spoke first, if you let it burn, we will have to put you on the spit instead. And on that, they went out. I sat there trembling and turning the corpse until midnight. The men came again, and the one said it was burnt, and the other said it was done right. But having fallen over, fallen out over it, they both said they would do me no harm that time. And sitting by the fire, one of them cried out, Michael Hart, can you tell a story? Never a one, said I. On that he caught me by the shoulders and put me out like a shot. It was a wild blowing night. Never in all my born days did I see such a night, and the darkest night that ever came out of the heavens. I did not know where I was for the life of me, so when one of the men came after me and touched on the shoulder with a Michael Hart, can you tell a story now? I can, says I, in he brought me. <laughs> Begin. I have no story but the one, says I, that I was sitting here, and that you two men brought in a corpse and put it on the spit and set me a turning it. That will do, says he, said he. You may go in there and lie down on the bed. And in I went, nothing loath. And in the morning, where was I but in the middle of a green field? <laughs> An interesting tale. An interesting experience. Corpse turning on a spit and then suddenly finding yourself in the middle of a green field when you woke up. I'm glad he survived. <laughs> okay. What time is it? Oh, I got fifteen minutes. I got a few bits. Okay. The Bard and the King of Cats. And this was actually by the Lady Wild. And I do apologize for mispronouncing if I do, which I probably will. When Shenshen, the renowned Bard, was Ardfi or chief poet of Ireland, where the King of Connacht, to do him an honor, made a graced feast for him and the whole Bardic Association. And all of the professors and learned men went to the king's house. The great olives of poetry and history and music and of the arts and of the sciences and the learned aged females, Grug and Greg and and all the cheap poets and poets of Ireland, an amazing number. But where the king entertained them all splendidly, so that the ancient pathway to his palace is still called the Road of the Dishes. 
and each day he asked, how fares it with my noble guests? But they were all discontented and wanted things he could not get for them. So he was very sorrowful and prayed to God that he be delivered from the learned men and women and vexatious class. Still, the feast went on for three days and three nights, and they drank and made merry, and the whole Bardic Association entertained the nobles and the choicest with the choicest of music and professional accomplishments. But Shanshan sulked and would neither eat nor drink, for he was jealous of the nobles of Connacht. And when he saw how much they consumed of the best meats and wine, he declared he would taste no food till they and their servants were all sent away out of the house. And when Guare asked him again, how fares my noble guest, this great and excellent people? Johnson answered, I have never had worse days, nor worse nights, nor worse dinners in my life. And he ate nothing for three whole days. Take them away, said Sanshin. I'll have none of them. And why, O royal bard, said the servitor. Because thou art an uncomely youth, answered Sanshin. Thy grandfather was chip-nailed, I have seen him. I shall eat no food from thy hands. Then the king called a beautiful maiden to him, his foster daughter, and said, Lady, bring thou this wheaten cake and this dish of salmon to the illustrious poet, and serve him thyself. So the maiden went. But when Sanchin saw her, he asked, Who sent thee thither, and thou, and why hast thou brought me food? My lord and king sent me, O royal bard, she answered, because I am comely to look upon, and he bade me serve thee with the food myself. Take it away, says Sanchin. Thou art an unseemly girl. I know of none more ugly. I have seen thy grandmother. She sat on the wall one day and pointed out the way with her hand to come traveling lepers. How could I touch thy food? So the maiden went away in sorrow. Then where the king was indeed angry, and he exclaimed, My malediction on the mouth that uttered that. May the kiss of a leper be on Sanchin's lips before he dies. Now there was a young serving girl there, and see, she said to Sanchin, There's a hen's egg in the, pot, in the place, my lord. May I bring it to thee, O chief bard? It will suffice. Bring it that I may eat. But when she went to look for it, behold, the egg was gone. Thou hast eaten it, said the bard with wrath. Not so, my lord. She answered, but the mice, the nimble race, have carried it away. Then I will satire them in a poem, said Sanchin, and forthwith he chanted so bitter a satire against them that ten mice fell dead at once in his presence. Tis well, said Sanchin, but the cat is the one most to blame, for it was her duty to suppress the mice. Therefore, I shall satire the tribe of cats and their chief lord, Erusin, son of Erusin.
for I know where he lives with his wife Spitfire, and his daughter Sharptooth, and her brothers the Perver and the Growler. But I shall begin with Orusen himself, for he is king, and answerable for all the cats. Something tells me this is not going to turn out well. And he said, Urusen, monster of claws, who strikes at the mouse but lets it go, weakest of cats. The otter did well when he bit off the tips of thy progenitor's ears, so that every cat's sense is jagged-eared. Let thy jail, let thy tail hang down. It is right, for the mouse jeers at thee. Now, Arusen heard the, these words in his cave. And he said to his daughter, Sharptooth, Sershan has satired me, but I will be avenged. Nay, father, she said, bring him here alive that we may all take our revenge. I shall go then and bring him, said Arusin. So send thy brothers after me. Now, when it was told to Sanshan, that the king of cats was on his way to come and kill him, he was timorous, and besought Guerre and all the nobles to stand by and protect him. And before long, a vibrating, impressive, impetuous sound was heard, like a raging tempest of fire in full blaze. And when the cat appeared, he seemed to them of the size of a bullock. And this was his appearance. Rapacious, snub-nosed, panting, jagged-eared, sharp-toothed, nimble, angry, vindictive, glare-eyed, terrible, sharp-clawed. Such was his similitude. But he passed on amongst them, not minding till he came to Sanshan. And him he seized by the arm and jerked him up on his neck on his back and made off the way he came before anyone could touch him, for he had no other object in view but to get hold of the poet. Now Sanshin, being an evil plight, had recourse to flattery. O oh, Irusen, he exclaimed, how truly splendid thou art! Such running, such leaps, such strength, and such agility! But what evil have I done, O Irusen, son of Erusen? Spare me, I entreat. I invoke the saints between thee and me, O great king of cats. But not a bit did the cat let go his hold for all this fine talk, but went straight to Clonmacnoise, where there was a forge, where there was a forge, and Saint Kieran happened to be there, standing at the door, just happened to be there. What, exclaimed the saint, is that the chief bard of Aaron on the back of the cat? Has Guerre's hospitality ended in this? And he ran for a red hot bar of iron that was in the furnace and struck the cat on the side with it so that the iron passed through him and he fell it down, lifeless. Now my curse on the hand that gave that blow, said the bard when he got upon his feet. And wherefore, 
because I would rather Erusin had killed me and eaten me every bit, that so I might give disgrace on Guare for the bad food he gave me. For it was all owing to his wretched dinners that I got into this plight. And when all the other kings heard of Sanchen's misfortunes, they sent to beg he should visit their courts. But he would have them neither kiss nor welcome from them, and went on his way to the Bardic Mansion, where the best of good living was always to be had. And ever after, the kings were afraid to offend Sancha. So as long as he lived, he had the chief place at the feast, and all the nobles were made to sit below him, and Sanchen was content. And in time, he and Guerre were reconciled, and Sanchen and all the Olavs and all the whole Bardic's association were feasted by the king for 30 days in noble style, and had the choicest of viands and the best of French wines to drink, served in goblets of silver, and in return for this splendid hospitality. The Bardic Association decreed unanimously a vote of thanks to the king, and they praised him in poems as Guare the Generous, by which name he is ever known in history, for the words of the poet are immortal. That is an odd story. That is a very odd story. And honestly, I think it should have ended quite differently for Sanchen. Honestly. I think he should have got what's coming for him. Okay. That is the last tale of the evening. We've got five minutes left until nine o'clock. So, thank you guys for popping in and listening. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your evening. I hope you guys enjoy this. And we'll continue to enjoy it in the days to come. And I hope you continue to be well while all of us is isolating at this point. All right. So to all, good night. Thank you for coming on.